Hello, and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Today's episode has been a long time coming. Modern day conservation practices, newly designed projects, and a whole movement are centered around this relatively new term, rewilding. While it seems pretty straightforward when you first hear it, rewilding is actually quite nuanced and deserves a full deep dive into what it is, what it isn't, and successful programs that are using rewilding the correct way. So let's dive in. So what is rewilding? Before we get to rewilding today, let's take a step back and explore rewilding's history and how it came to be. Rewilding was first introduced to the scientific community in the 1990s by Soleil and Noss, whose landmark paper described the three central features of rewilding, which included reintroducing keystone species, protecting large swaths of land, and connecting protected areas through wildlife corridors. This later became known as the Cores, Corridors, and Carnivores, or the Three Seas Model. Fast forward to today, and rewilding has undergone scrutiny, refinement, and application. So what is rewilding in today's context? To answer this seemingly simple question, I took a deep dive into recent scientific literature, and luckily, I found this paper published in the Journal of Conservation Biology called Guiding Principles for Rewilding. The first author is Steve Carver and was just released in 2021. Previously, not one definition or set of guiding principles existed for rewilding, and so this group of experts was appointed by the International Union for Conservation of Nature Commission on Ecosystem Management, or CEM for short. They interviewed over 50 rewilding experts and scoured the existing literature to come to an all-encompassing definition of rewilding. So, here is how Carver et al. define rewilding. Quote, rewilding is the process of rebuilding, following major human disturbance, a natural ecosystem by restoring natural processes in the complete or near-complete food web at all trophic levels as a self-sustaining and resilient ecosystem with biota that would have been present had the disturbance not occurred, end quote. Rewilding truly is a different conservation management style, which Carver et al.'s 10 guiding principles for rewilding demonstrate. Let's review these and then discuss them in further detail. Principle number one, rewilding utilizes wildlife to restore trophic interactions. Principle number two, rewilding employs landscape scale planning that considers core areas, connectivity, and coexistence. Principle number three, rewilding focuses on the recovery of ecological processes, interactions, and conditions based on reference ecosystems. Principle number four, rewilding recognizes that ecosystems are dynamic and constantly changing. Principle number five, rewilding should anticipate the effects of climate change where possible and act as a tool to mitigate impacts. Principle number six, rewilding requires local engagement and support. Principle number seven, rewilding is informed by science, traditional ecological knowledge, and other local knowledge. Principle number eight, rewilding is adaptive and dependent on monitoring and feedback. Principle number nine, 
rewilding recognizes the intrinsic value of all species and ecosystems. Wild nature has its own intrinsic value that humanity has an ethical responsibility to both respect and protect. And lastly, principle number 10. Rewilding requires a paradigm shift in the coexistence of humans and nature. Obviously, not every rewilding project can utilize all 10 principles, but there are a few I want to highlight further. As the first principle states, rewilding projects should consider restoring all trophic interactions by reintroducing missing species. This is where our beloved apex predators, large herbivores, ecosystem engineers, and keystone species enter the conversation. Nature is always striving for balance, and each member of a trophic level evolves to fill a certain niche. Once every trophic level is restored, then an ecosystem will return to equilibrium. These reintroductions should also be considered on a landscape scale, as Sarika in episode 66 discussed for tigers in central India. Restoring missing species in one protected area just isn't enough anymore, as we've seen a time and time again. We need to ask, what does the ecosystem at large need? Next, I want to discuss principles number six and number seven. These ideas have been brought up countless times on the podcast by guests from all around the world. Rewilding projects need to engage all stakeholders and be formulated using sound science and indigenous knowledge. These crucial principles were lacking in many previous conservation projects, and while some accomplished their objective to a point, we're now seeing the aftermath of excluding communities from conservation decisions. The planet is in the worst state it's ever been. It's time to do something different. Next, you might be wondering, what are the different types of rewilding? While each rewilding project is unique with its own set of challenges, most projects can be added into one of four categories, passive, trophic, Pleistocene, and ecological. Passive rewilding is exactly what it sounds like, humans getting the hell out of the way of nature and letting her return the environment to a natural state. This isn't the official definition of passive rewilding, but it's accurate. Backer and Svenning define trophic rewilding as, quote, an ecological restoration strategy that uses species introduction to restore top-down trophic interactions and associated trophic cascades to promote self-regulating biodiverse ecosystems, end quote. In other words, as we discussed in first rewilding principle, reintroducing species to fill missing trophic levels. In my research of current well-known rewilding projects, pretty much all of them fit into this category. Ecological rewilding, quote, allows natural processes to regain dominance. This rewilding strategy's main focus is to restore processes like water quality. Lastly, Pleistocene rewilding involves restoring, quote, ecological interactions lost during the Pleistocene megafauna extinction. Supporters of this type of rewild aren't exactly advocating to bring back extinct large herbivores, although some people are looking into that, and I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can read more about this, but to use large herbivores to restore ecosystem function. This includes bison on the North American Great Plains, giant tortoises in the Galapagos Islands, elephants in Africa, and wild horses in Europe. Again, I'll dive into specific examples a little later in the episode. Next, you might be wondering what is the difference between restoration and rewilding? 
This is a great question because there's no longer a clear answer. When rewilding was first introduced as a conservation method, the aim was to employ minimal human intervention to convert degraded land back to its original wild state. Restoration, on the other hand, has relied on ecological restorers to return an ecosystem back to a natural state. As the rewilding movement has grown and evolved with many areas not able to passively rewild, people have stepped in to assist nature in the process. In my eyes, the biggest difference between the two concepts is that restoration doesn't usually include a strong social component. As explained in the sixth guiding principle, rewilding must engage all stakeholders and the local community. In my years as a conservationist and having worked alongside ecologists, working with locals was never a required objective for the project. This doesn't necessarily mean that ecologists didn't want to work with the local community. It just wasn't a part of the agenda. And when you're given a strict set of objectives to accomplish in a short timeline with limited grant funds, you do as you're told. Now, after reading through the scientific literature, restoration is generally considered a tool in rewilding experts' toolkit to help achieve their conservation goals. Now I think it's only fair that we dive into what the problems of rewilding are. Probably the biggest issue of rewilding is that until very recently, no one agreed on what it actually was, leading to confusion and ill-defined goals for new conservation projects. The Carver et al. paper I've referred to throughout this episode was just accepted in 2021, and yet the term rewilding has been around since the 1990s. Without clearly defined concepts, rewilding has been slapped on almost every new conservation initiative, several of which lack the crucial qualities necessary to be considered a rewilding project. So what are some examples of rewilding the right way? First, let's chat about the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative, or Y2Y. Y2Y strives to create a massive wildlife corridor spanning 2,000 miles or 3,200 kilometers for everyone else in the world, from Canada's Yukon to the United States Yellowstone ecosystem. What started as an idea during a 14-day hike across the Canadian Rockies in 1993, Y2Y has turned into a full movement with a mission of, quote, connecting and protecting habitat from Yellowstone to Yukon so people and nature can thrive. This project utilizes many of the rewilding guiding principles presented by Carver et al., including using sound science to reach management decisions, engaging all stakeholders, including indigenous communities, landscape scale conservation. I mean, 2,000 miles is huge. Check out the map in the show notes to see how much area this corridor covers. And ecological restoration. Since its inception in 1993, protected areas in the Y2Y region have increased by 80%. In addition, 500,000 acres of private land have been added through partnerships with landowners and 117 wildlife crosses have been built. Next, let's hop across the globe and go to Scotland. Scotland is known for its jaw-dropping landscapes and delicious whiskey, but unfortunately, humans have reduced the country's once sprawling forest to a mere 3% of its former glory. Conservationists are changing this narrative by rewilding the country and restoring ancient Caledonian forest in the Africa Highlands. 
They are accomplishing this by reintroducing keystone species like the lynx and beavers, restoring peatlands, selectively converting plantations to forests, creating forested corridors for wildlife dispersal, and managing deer populations. One feature that I really love about this initiative is its dedication to creating a nature-based economy, selling carbon credits, establishing nature tourism, and creating sustainable products are all goals of the project, all of which engage and support local communities. Now let's hop across the globe again and explore Africa. Based in South Africa, the Peace Parks Foundation was founded in 1997 by Nelson Mandela, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, and Dr. Anton Rupert, with a dream of moving beyond political borders to create transfrontier conservation areas or peace parks. The goal of these regions is to protect and reconnect wildlife migration routes while supplying local communities with sustainable livelihoods. While their efforts have not been without controversy, the foundation has made great progress in establishing several TCFAs, most notably Kaza or the Kazango Zambezi Transfrontier Conservation Area. Kaza is the world's largest transfrontier conservation area. It spans across five countries, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana, Angola, and Namibia, and covers around 520,000 square kilometers, encompasses 36 protected areas, and includes two of the world's most famous natural attractions, the Okavango Delta and Victoria Falls. Local communities were not forgotten when Kaza was established in 2011. Millions of dollars have been poured into the area for community development, education, livelihoods, and human-wildlife conflict mitigation, with tourism being the main revenue generator for the region. In 2019, I had the privilege of traveling to this part of the world and purchased a CASA visa to explore Victoria Falls, the Zambezi River, Moise Altunya National Park, the Okavango Delta, and Makarikari Salt Pans. At the time, I had no idea what Kaza was and didn't feel much need to learn more. Now that I know a significant amount more about the work that has gone into the area, I appreciate my experiences even further and can honestly say that the Kaza region may be my favorite place on earth as of now. I highly recommend adding Kaza to your bucket list and experiencing the power of rewilding yourself. Lastly, what is rewilding for humans? I couldn't help but include this topic because I think it's both fun and interesting to explore. What started as a spinoff from the current rewilding movement, human rewilding has become a whole thing of its own with the message of returning to our pre-domesticated state. While supporters of this movement don't want us to shed our clothes and move back into caves, they do stress that over millennia, we evolved tools and problem-solving abilities that kept us alive in the most adverse conditions, almost all of which have been removed from our cushy lives. Although we're safe from saber-toothed cats and exposure from the elements, the lack of wild in our lives has left us wandering and lost, Behavioral health and addiction problems are through the roof and we're more disconnected from nature and each other than ever before. Through wilderness survival camps, meditation, and paleo diets, human rewilding advocates hope to heal society by reintegrating people with nature. And there you have it, everyone. 
hopefully a digestible exploration of the rewilding movement. If you'd like to read the sources used in this episode, which they are a ton, visit the website at rewildology.com and click on show notes or wildlife conservation under the blog tab. I also plan to dive deeper into this topic in the near future by having on guests that are leading rewilding projects all around the world. I already have a few in the works and might create an entire series just on this topic. I'll be sure to keep you in the know. And speaking of staying in the know, if you'd like to stay up to date on everything that's happening at the podcast, head on over to rewildology.com and sign up for a monthly newsletter. I promise we only send informative emails. I hate spam as much as you do. Also, if you'd like to support the show, you can leave up to a five-star rating on most podcast platforms and leave a review on Apple Podcast. Lastly, I absolutely love when any of you reach out to me. So if you'd like to chat about rewilding the world, DM me on Instagram at rewildology, send me an email at hello at rewildology.com, or comment on the YouTube video of this episode. Thanks again for listening, and remember, together we'll rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.